up on today's show, briefings from the chief public health officer of our country have been all but suspended during the federal election campaign. What do we know about the Afghanistan crisis and how it fits into the historical view we'll have of that whole incident? And then the wildest story, a story of a wasp that takes over a cockroach, turns it into a zombie. The Conservatives and the New Democrats, the Green Party, they've all raised concerns over the suspension of regular COVID briefings by Theresa Tam, the head of the Public Health Agency of Canada. The Tories have, in fact, called for a formal investigation. Now, I understand we're supposed to get a modelling update from Theresa Tam this week uh, in terms of the fourth wave and where we might be headed, but those daily briefings and those daily updates, they've been suspended since the start of the election campaign. So... Why? What's the what's the reasoning behind this? Let's chat now with Michael Barrett, a Conservative candidate who served as the party's ethics critic in the last Parliament. Um, Michael, thanks for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So this investigation that's being pushed by the Conservatives, um, let's uh, get into the specifics. Who are you asking to investigate and what do you want them to investigate? So we've asked the interim clerk of the Privy Council to take a look at whether or not something called the Caretaker Convention has been violated by the um, the Liberals uh, at a time when we're in an election. And so, uh, much like it sounds, uh, the Caretaker Convention is is set up so that um, the government is not supposed to be really making major decisions, changing the course of what has been done when the country's in an election. And um, as you mentioned, we were getting uh, daily briefings from uh, Dr. Tam previously during the pandemic, but we've never had a modeling update released without that being, you know, without there being a technical briefing to media, followed by questions uh, and comments with with Dr. Tam. But last week, um, the public health agency said that for the first time, um, they would not be they would not be doing that in person. And following our um, our call for an investigation, they've suddenly decided uh, there there ought to be uh, a briefing with Dr. Tam. Yeah, and even with this one briefing on modeling with Dr. Tam, that doesn't change the fact that this is a drastically different approach uh, to what we've seen for the past 18 months suddenly taking place as the campaign kicks off. Um, you mentioned the caretaker convention. It's been around for a while, and it clearly states, I mean, there's guidelines around this. Public servants should continue with their normal duties uh, without doing anything that might influence the campaign. So it's already been handled before in terms of this is what public servants should do. This is the expectation, even during a campaign. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so these regular public health agency COVID briefings uh, should return immediately. Uh, it was Mr. Trudeau who called an election during uh, the, the Delta wave, which is affecting different parts of our country um, in, in varying degrees. But uh, at the end of the day, Canadians have a right to hear from public health officials. And based on the precedent that was set up prior to the election, public health uh, officials have an obligation to deliver that information. And if there's been any interference by, um, by political staff or by politicians um, on the eve of or during an election, that's completely inappropriate and it needs to be uh, investigated and uh, brought to the public's attention by the uh, by the Privy Council. Now, we're not in uncharted territory here. If you think about it, we have had several uh, provincial elections that have been held during the pandemic, and we can take a look at what the public health officers in those provinces did. So what does precedent show us about how this can be handled? It should be handled exactly the way it was handled prior prior to the writ drop and those other examples in, in other provinces serves that well. Um, the, there's, there's no reason for these uh, briefings not to have gone forward uh, unless 
um, there there was the belief uh, by some in political quarters that th- there could be bad news and that um, and that the the politicians on the campaign trail would have to address the bad news that um, the the public service was giving. So uh, there's there's only one reason why the briefings would not be happening, and um, and that's that's uh, completely unacceptable. Okay, that one reason. Let's get to that because there's a lot of speculation, and I'm sure there's a lot of people who are thinking, well, this was done at the direction of the prime minister's office. They have come out and said, no, no, we haven't. Um, the, the the timing of this and the and the availabilities and the briefings are completely under her control. Um, do you think the government is somehow involved in this? And this is is this something that will be asked as part of the investigation? Well, we think that certainly it's it's to be uh, investigated by uh, the uh, it, it ought to be investigated by the clerk of the Privy Council um, for that very reason. And uh, we see now that after questions were raised uh, by conservatives to the Privy Council office, that in fact um, the public health agency has invoked their ability to have an in-person briefing, in spite of what they'd only said uh, they've said only days before. And so we know that they're able to do it. But uh, the timing is um, is far too um, uh, far too convenient uh, potentially for the government for it to merely be uh, a coincidence. And if this is a case of you know uh, public servants trying to be helpful and to stay out of the way, well, then that's exactly what the investigation would uncover. But if in fact there was political interference, um, then then that needs to be that needs to be called out and brought to light before Canadians get to the ballot box. Yeah, Michael, I guess, and it goes without saying, we keep hearing about this fourth wave, and we know there's all kinds of problems with different healthcare systems, and things are getting to a pretty sketchy area here. I mean, those briefings serve a purpose. Well, yeah, absolutely. They they give uh, and Canadians have come to to count on them. In, yeah. Uh, in a lot of ways, I don't think that very many people could have named our. Um, you know, uh, knew what the, the the public health agency of Canada was, or knew who uh, who the chief doctor responsible for it was before COVID nineteen. Now we look to um, uh, public health for for answers for confidence, and it's uh, it's very important. And also, it, it, it's also important in the context of the election that we find ourselves in, because um, you know we knew that we knew that the that we weren't out of the woods with COVID nineteen. Uh, the government had not fallen on a question of confidence in the house. And had the pledge support of um, of the fourth party in the House, the NDP, to, to prop them up. So th- there was no reason for this election call to have ha- to um, have happened. And if we are in a worsening situation with COVID, I certainly think that speaks to the poor judgment of Mr. Trudeau. And again, um, is something that voters should consider uh, when they cast their ballots. Yeah, and I'm sure they will. Uh, there's some new polling today, Michael. Thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Yeah, pleasure. That is Michael Barrett, a conservative candidate and uh, the party's ethics critic in the last parliament. And, you know, he was talking about the fact that, um, you know, we're in the middle of this quote-unquote fourth wave, and you're hearing so much about it, and we're seeing some of the impacts it's having on the Alberta healthcare system. It's same story in other provinces, too. Uh, cases have started to take off again. So uh, some new polling out today in terms of how Canadians feel about the fact that we're in the midst of a federal election campaign as this is happening. It's not good news. Uh, 58% of Canadians surveyed in this poll by Ipsos for Global News agree the country should not be holding an election right now. It's gone up 2% uh, over the past two weeks. 
um, and uh, respondents are saying it's just not the right time. It's uh, We don't need to do this. There's no actual reason. There's no law saying we need to have an election at this point. The government didn't fall in a confidence vote in the House of Commons. So there's no real reason for us to have to go to the polls right now. And when you take a look at what's going on around the pandemic in our country right now, uh, a lot of people really concerned that we're running a federal election campaign when clearly we have uh, an issue that's already here and promises to only get worse. I mean, election day is still three weeks away from tomorrow. Uh, Where are we going to be by then in terms of the fourth wave and COVID not heading in a good direction? You know, over the past week or two, as we've talked about the Afghanistan situation, um, I've been very fortunate to hear from some people who have all kinds of different viewpoints and perspectives and experience and firsthand knowledge of the situation there today and who were personally part of the history over the past 20 years. Some of them we've had on the air. You've heard from them too. Others have contacted me personally to share their stories and give me some background and some perspective and uh, a big thank you to all of them. I really appreciate it. That kind of insight is invaluable in trying to tell this story and help us understand what we're seeing. And today we have another person joining us with uh, really great insight, Lori Hahn. Uh, a veteran and as a member of Stephen Harper's government, a frontline official on several Afghanistan files over many years. Uh, thrilled that he can join us this morning. Uh, Laurie, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Absolutely, Jay. Great to be with you. So, Laurie, when we take a look at, uh, just to give people some perspective about when we're talking to you about this, it's not like we're talking to somebody who was sort of on the fringes. You, you were intimately involved and you spent a lot of time there and you did a lot of work around the situation in Afghanistan, right? Yeah, I was there seven times visiting the troops, five Christmases from 06 to 10, and then two other committee visits. Uh, I was also the government lead on a couple of committees on Taliban detainees and the and the mission in general. So I was, you know, as Peter McKay's parliamentary secretary, I was pretty closely involved with that and uh, have been following, you know, the, the latest part with, with a lot of dismay. Okay, that's the question, Laurie, this, this latest part. We're talking about two weeks uh, out of a 20-year mission, so... Are are we losing perspective on the entire Afghanistan mission, or um, does this really sort of define it for you? Well, you know, this was a mission that, you know, we had to eventually rely on Afghans to look after themselves. We can't be there forever. The Americans and Brits and Aussies, other people, could not be there forever. So part of it was obviously defeating al-Qaeda and the Taliban. But after that, we had to give the Afghans the capacity to, to do it themselves. And there's a, an old Taliban saying that, uh, you know, you have the watches, we have the time. Mm-hmm. And they would take as much time as it took, and they're very patient in those uh, sort of cultures. And, you know, that, uh, and there was a lot of corruption involved. You know, we set up the, the Taliban, or sorry, the, uh, the Afghan government, and there were some people in power that we didn't elect, but we aided those elections. But it's a place with a very, very high level of corruption uh, and bribery and so on. So it's very difficult for them to hang on. And when the Taliban were standing by, you know, waiting to do what the, what they did with support from other players, like particularly Afghanistan, sorry, particularly Pakistan. The biggest problem in Afghanistan, in my view, is Pakistan. Right, yep. Who have been sheltering uh, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban and funding them. And it put the Americans in a tough spot because, you know, they were sending Pakistan a lot of money for, for other reasons, but a lot of that money was being filtered into the Taliban. So it was pretty tough for the Americans to give them money and say, okay, uh, you know, they couldn't follow the money, uh, put it that way. So it's, uh, it was, I don't want to say doomed to fail, because, you know, we did give 
Af- Afghanistan, the people of Afghanistan, many years of progress. Yes. Now, whether that'll last or not, you know, who knows? But I'll give you one little uh, uh, sort of anecdote. On Christmas Eve at 1030 in 2006, I was standing at one of our forward operating bases, Nate Massengar with, with Rick Hillier and uh, John Baird and uh, Jay Hill, looking out over the countryside. And it was dark. There was no lights on anywhere. Uh, you could hear artillery in the distance. You could hear 500-pound bombs going off. And you were having a coffee and a cigar and saying, you know, this is real. And then a year to the minute later, Christmas Eve 2007, 10.30, standing at exactly the same spot with Rick Hillier and Peter McKay and looking out over the countryside, and there were lights on, and it was quiet, and there was peace. The villages you could see, it kind of looked like a scene from the prairies with all the villages in the distance. And I said to myself and, and the guys with me, I said, you know, don't tell me we're not making progress. We are making progress. Now, was it doomed to fail? Well, only if we didn't give the Afghans or the Afghans didn't take enough responsibility to, to do it on their own. And that was always going to be a challenge. But you know what? We, we did send a lot of kids to school. We did send a lot of women uh, to, to work. You know, we had a, a microloans program that for 200 bucks a woman could start a business. And thousands of them did and, and brought their families out of, out of poverty. And you know, we had women in Parliament. And I was privileged to meet some of those folks there and, and back in Canada. So we did do some good things. We did make some progress. You know, was it worth it? You know, you'd have to ask people other than, than me. You'd have to ask some of the soldiers who are now struggling with the uh, emotional fallout of, of uh, the way it wound up. You'd have to talk to some of the some of the widows of, of the folks who were killed there, and I know a bunch of them. And they're probably hurting right now because it's tough for them to say, you know, this was worth it. But, you know, to, to, me, to me, we did give Afghanistan something to hope for. And maybe just maybe down the road, they'll, they'll get something to cling to again. Yeah, maybe that seed has been planted. But I think you make a really good point. It's sort of been my concern to, to stand up and say, oh, what a waste of time. It was a complete failure. We, we accomplished nothing. Um, to me, that really sort of cheapens the tremendous work, and I'm glad you highlighted some of it, that our troops did there. We yeah. can't discount the work that they did at considerable risk, obviously, yeah. um, in, in benefit of the Afghan people. No, I, I could not be prouder of our of our men and women in uniform for what they did, and not not just in uniform, but the civilians that were there, uh, you know, from the various government departments that were there, almost at the same risk, not quite, but almost at the same risk as the military folks. And if you haven't seen Ron Ambrose's uh, pitch on Facebook, please go find it. Uh, it's very emotional, and it talks about okay, what do we do now? And what we do now is try to get out some of the people, some of the Afghans, interpreters and, and so on, that, that helped us and their families. Because, you know, we brought out about 3,700, but there are thousands there yeah. that are at grave risk. And and Ronna makes a great plea to, you know, there's a number of generals, David Fraser, Dennis Thompson, Dean Milner, friends of mine, who are working on, you know, raising money to get them out. Uh, and, and the Veterans Transition Network, which is run by a guy named Tim Laidler, who I know reasonably well, is also part of that. So I really encourage people to, to Google Ron Ambrose and just see what she has to say. It's very emotional. It's very powerful. And it, it should stir people to, to some, some action or at least some better understanding of, of the mission. Lori, let me ask you, because the question I have that I don't understand is why would, did we wait till the last two weeks to try and do this? Canada hasn't had troops in Afghanistan since yeah. 2014. So when yeah. we left, why did we not immediately start working seven years ago on a plan to make sure that these people that we all now seem to understand we owe a debt to, why didn't we start working on it then? 
Well, Shay, that's that's the really good question of the day. And not to get too political, but we had all the intel. We knew what was eventually going to happen, the challenge that the Afghans were going to face, you know, sooner or later. And part of it for Canada is, you know, we've been, and I don't want to get off into a political tangent, but we've been focused on an election instead of, instead of this. You know, we should have started planning this, if not seven years ago, you know, a year Seven ago, months a year, ago. A, a long time ago. Because uh, we had all these until we knew what was going to happen. Uh, and, and, you know, when we did finally get in the game of this, you know, we sent out things by email, you know, sort of blasting email out there to uh, Afghans to say, okay, go to this website and sign up and it'll take two weeks to process the thing and you got to have all this information. Of course, most of the Afghans don't have access to that. Mm-hmm. So it was, it, was, it was ludicrous, a ludicrous process to put in place. You know, the, the Brits and the Americans and the French, for sure, uh, have been out there going out into the neighborhoods yes. and picking, picking up folks that they know. And we know, you know, pretty much through intelligence and so on, who pretty much all of these people are. And we know where they are, for the most part. So we could have done an awful lot more, an awful lot sooner to, to get the process in place and make it a process that the Afghans could actually follow, not you know, stuff that would be difficult for people in Canada to follow with, with our, uh, you know, access to, to technology and so on. But they don't have access to that, most of them. No, so it was, it yeah. was, they, were, they were doomed. Um, so, Laurie, uh, that doesn't sound great uh, for the future of these people that we've left behind. I know that there's work going on, but the question for me around that work that's going on and trying to establish a safe zone and, and to force the Taliban to ensure safe passage... Um, as somebody who's dealt with the political realities in that part of the world, including the Taliban, um, the fact that we're negotiating with the Taliban and relying on them to help support our mission seems to me like another disaster in the making. Am I right or am I wrong? Well, you're, you're partially right, but, you know, we don't have a whole lot of choice at the moment. The Taliban are there, and there are, I'm, I'm hoping, we're hoping, some reasonably rational elements within the Taliban that will understand that, you know, if they cooperate a little bit, it might be a little easier on them down the road. I mean, right now, ISIS-K, uh, is, they're, they're fighting with the Taliban, and they were the guys that had the explosion the other day at, uh, at, at Kabul Airport. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Taliban could help us with that. You know, and that kind of thing, you know, keeping ISIS-K down would help. Our, I mean, our ultimate aim is to get these Afghans out, first and foremost, is to get the Afghans out that have helped us and get them to get them to safety. Beyond that, you know, the long term in Afghanistan is you, you know you, you work with with what you got. And right now, there's going to be a Taliban government of some kind in uh, Afghanistan. We should never recognize them per se, uh, but through direct contact or through other folks in the area, you know, maybe we can you know encourage some things and get them done. But here's where some of the corruption comes in. They're going to form a government, and the, the three or four guys who will lead that government are hardcore Taliban. Right. There's going to be six, eight, ten others, uh, perhaps like Hamid Karzai and, and Abdul Abdullah and, and other players there who will be put up there as see, look, look, see, we've got these, uh, we've got these moderate Afghans. Uh, aren't, aren't we being nice? And it's, it's complete BS. There's going to be three or four guys controlling that and Karzai and, and Abdullah Abdullah and the rest will be, uh, will be there. will be there for show. So it's, it's a long-term thing. You know, Afghanistan has been called the graveyard of empires and yeah. a whole bunch of different things for, for a long time for, for a reason. So this is not a short-term thing. I think Canada needs to stay involved. First and foremost, get the people out as much as we can that, that, and save them from, from certain death with the Taliban. 
And then, you know, longer term with the with the bigger international community, to try to put some pressure where you can put pressure to force the Taliban or encourage the Taliban that you know maybe it's in your best long term interest as much as right. we disagree completely with your form of government and your form of, uh, of, of philosophy and culture, maybe it's in your best interest to just back off a little bit and make things a little bit easier for the Afghan people. We're not going to see a turnaround. We're not going to see any you know, democratic elections no, of course not. In, in Afghanistan. That's just not going to happen. And one of the things that I always talked about you know, back when we were involved was, you know, in, in Canada, we seem to think that we can make uh, Afghanistan like Canada. Uh, and that was a very admirable sort of thought, but it's completely unrealistic. They will never be like Canada or the U.S. or Britain or anywhere else. The culture over, you know, centuries and centuries, the culture will just not allow that. So let's quit pretending that our aim is to make them, you know, a democratic country like Canada. Just not going to happen. Right. Yeah. Deal with reality and, and make it, make them the best Afghanistan they can be, and which will never be Canada. Yeah, exactly, Laurie. I think I think we've learned that lesson. Uh, we're we're not the first. Uh, I mean, there's nope, as no, you said, not. so many countries have learned that lesson the hard way. But uh, it'll be interesting to see where this goes. I I really appreciate your insight, Laurie. Thanks very much. Anytime. Thanks, Jake. Cheers. Yeah, you bet. That is Laurie Hahn, uh, the former federal conservative MP. Um, from Edmonton Centre, and uh, he was in the Harper government, involved intimately with this whole situation. As you heard, he was there several times. Um, he was involved with Peter McKay as Defence Secretary. So he's boots on the ground, as they say. And um, it, it is a head-scratching position we find ourselves in, isn't it? Um, now in a position where we're negotiating with the Taliban and relying on the Taliban to ensure safe passage of the Canadians we've left behind. This is a really cool story. It's it's unbelievable, really, to me. There's so many questions I have about this. It's it's a real-life horror story is what it is. It's this species of wasp that basically turns cockroaches into zombies. You aren't going to believe this. This is absolutely crazy to me. So to get the details, we're going to chat with Ken Catania, who's a biologist at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. And he just put out this study that shows how these wasps use a series of very precisely targeted stings to take control of the cockroach. Ken, thank you for joining us this morning. I appreciate your time. Hi, it's great to be here. This story is crazy, isn't it? I mean, as somebody who studies this, does this not leap off the page as, wow, this is unbelievable? Absolutely. It's, uh, I'm still amazed by the story. Actually, I got into the story because I teach a Halloween lecture at Vanderbilt University here, and I just I was looking for a combination of sort of neurosciences and total creepiness, <laughs> and this fit the bill perfectly. Oh, hit it right on the head. No doubt about it. <laughs> Basically, okay, first of all, let's break down the two um, characters in our horror story here. What kind of wasp, and, and it's a cockroach, and what kind of wasp? Yeah, so it's the American cockroach, which is terribly named because it didn't evolve here. It evolved in, in Africa and was brought here historically. Um, and then there's the emerald jewel wasp. And the emerald jewel wasp is a really beautiful insect that basically... In order to reproduce, the only way it can reproduce is to subdue an American cockroach, lay an egg on it, and the story is straight out of sort of Edgar Allan Poe crossed with with alien. <laughs> okay, so now they they actually zombify these cockroaches. I guess just tell us what the wasp does. Sure. So the wasp has this challenge. It's got a really sort of a, a big spiny 
armored target if you're the size of a wasp, but a, a co- an adult cockroach is intimidating. So how is it going to overcome this creature? Um, worse yet, how is it going to transport this creature to a hole where it's got a barricade? It can't carry it. So it, it, what it has to do is essentially a targeted sort of neurosurgical strike. And the way it does this is to first sting the cockroach between the front legs into the central nervous system part that controls the legs to tempor- temporarily paralyze the front legs. Okay. Then it follows that up once the cockroach is hobbled by stinging it directly into the brain. And it sort of weaves its stinger up through the throat of the cockroach into the cockroach brain. Seriously? And that, seriously. And it's got little sensors on its stinger so it can find the brain. And then that dose of venom will essentially zombify the cockroach and, the, and sort of the wasp can bend it to its will after that. And then it drags it off to its hole or wherever it is, right? Yeah, even creepier than that. First, it cuts off its antenna, takes a blood meal like the little vampire. Then it drags it to a hole. And then what I, so th- this first part of the story was already sure. very well known by other folks that had studied it. And I brought the wasps and the cockroaches to Vanderbilt to, to just film them for my class. And what I discovered in the course of doing this is that there's a third neurosurgical strike. And this sort of happens because the cockroach legs block where the egg needs to be laid. Okay. And so what the wasp then does is things into a third part of the central nervous system, and that causes the legs to involuntarily open to the point where there's this area where the wasp can lay the egg. Okay. And so part, part of the story is that it's not all as easy as you might think to be the alien chest burster in this story. <laughs> the wasp has to lay the egg in just the right place. Now, I imagine we've got all kinds of evolution at play here, but still, to me, when you're talking about a wasp, like, this seems to require, to me, intelligence and and learning. I mean, you're talking about very precise, specific locations on the cockroach's body that they know they have to target, what order they have to do it in. Is it simple evolution? I mean, this blows my mind. It is mind-blowing, but you raise some great questions because... Um, these wasps can do it properly the first time, so there's no learning involved. Okay. And also, and also, if they're very robotic about it, as many instinctive behaviors are. So if you block the legs by gluing the leg in place, it'll just repeatedly sting in the same place a hundred times over. It's kind of like it gets, it gets stuck in this sort of loop. Right. Okay, so there's no problem solving. It's, this is what they know to do, and they're going to keep doing it. Exactly. Unbelievable. Now, the the story gets grosser from there, Ken. Yes. So So they lay the egg, and then what happens with the little baby wasp? Well, so they they do this in a sort of a crypt that they brought the cockroach to, and then they block the, the, well, they lay the egg on the cockroach, and then they block the entrance. So it's straight out of Edgar Allan Poe in that case. You know, and so, so now you've got the cockroach blocked in this crypt, and the larva, hat, the larva hatches out, takes a blood meal from the outside of the cockroach, then burrows into the cockroach and eats it from the inside while it's still alive. Straight out of, straight out of Alien. And this is so you one... You don't want to be the cockroach in this story. Actually, this is the part of the story where most of the students in my class start to feel sorry for cockroaches, which is a real <laughs> testament to how bad this is. Um... So is it one wasp that's laid per cockroach, or is there a whole bunch that take over this cockroach? 
it's just one. It's one adult cockroach for each egg. So the wasp, the, the, the female wasp, really has quite the challenge. She has to go out, hunt, find. And the other thing, the other part of this story is the cockroaches defend themselves by kicking. A lot of the big ones will. Um, that's the only way that they seem to be able to survive this encounter is to kick at the wasp repeatedly with their back legs. And if they do that enough, then the wasp will say, okay, I'm going to go look for an easier target. Is there any other example in the insect world that is this intricate, this advanced? I mean, this seems like extraordinary behavior to me. Yeah, so, you know, um, there's two ways to answer that. One is I don't know of any other parasitoid that has such a complicated attack targeting the central nervous system of its victim. On the other hand, we know so little about what's going on out there um, you know, I, and I'll, uh, here's where I'll mention, I just wrote a book called Great Adaptations that has movies linked to QR codes that can show you this. And the, and the basic theme of the book is that the closer that we look at these different species, so I've been looking at electric eels and star-nosed moles and these animal jewel wasps, the more we find that is unknown and incredible that we're just now uncovering. So when you ask, is there anything else that does this? I would say probably there's there are more complicated yeah. ones out there that we have yet to discover. Unbelievable. Just fascinating. Ken, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you very much. That's Ken Catania, who is a biologist at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, who did this work around the wasp and the cockroach. And it's, I mean, just think about that for a second. The 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 incredible steps that this wasp has to go through. And somehow, I mean, the part that blows my mind is once he or she, I guess, drags the cockroach off to its hole, right? Now, if the leg isn't in the right position for it to lay the eggs where it can access the body, it knows precisely where to sting this cockroach to involuntarily move the leg by stimulating the central nervous system. I mean, you want to talk evolution? How many how many, how many centuries did that take? It's just it's mind blowing stuff. It's the kind of thing that you you hear it and you see the evidence and you're like, wow, that's absolutely incredible. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.